Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence by the Ohio Board of Regents in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, a brand-new facility completed in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in the new building. Read more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. This time, we're talking with Nehemia Gordon, a world-renowned Jewish scholar. He partnered with an African-American Methodist pastor from Minneapolis. Together, they discovered a Hebrew version of the Lord's Prayer, preserved by Jewish rabbis for over a thousand years. Mr. Gordon, welcome. Hey, thank you. Shalom. It's great to be here. It's nice to have you here, and thanks for your time. I, I know you've been on the road with this. Uh, this book, uh, quite an enterprise for you and, and your partner. Yeah, well, I know for me it definitely was a, a great departure from, you know, what, what I started out in. You know, I'm, I'm Jewish, I'm not Christian, and uh, if you would have told me, you know, 15 years ago, you're going to be joining together with an African-American Methodist pastor to write a book about the Hebrew origins of what Christians call the Lord's Prayer, I would have said, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you know uh, that's, that's unthinkable for me. Um, I didn't want to, you know, really have anything to do with... Um, really with Christianity or Jesus, you know, the association for me as a Jew was, you know, the centuries of persecution. And um, it was really, you know, I was kind of minding my own business in academia uh, at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, working on the Dead Sea Scrolls and other research projects. And this uh, Methodist pastor comes to Israel and a friend of a friend said, would you, you know, would you take him around and, and show him some sites? And I had done some of that. My, my bachelor's degree was in archaeology. So I had done some, you know, tour uh, taking some tourists around on the side, and I said, "Okay, sure, I'll, I'll spend the day and take him around." And um, and and but he actually had another agenda, and his agenda was that he had come to Israel in order to get a Torah scroll. Now, for that's for that's that's qu that's quite an effort, is it not? For those people not familiar uh, with the Jewish faith, that those are not readily available. You can't go to your local bookstore. No, you can't even go to your local Jewish bookstore and get one. Um, I mean, you might be able to order one. But a Torah scroll costs anywhere between thirty dollars and $50,000. Keith was just, you know, <laughs> a pastor. He doesn't have that kind of, you know, resources. But he had this dream. He had a dr literally a dream that told him he needed to come to Israel to get a Torah scroll. And um, he's telling me the story in Jerusalem. We're sitting at the Mount Zion Hotel, and we're drinking coffee, and he's telling me the story. And I'm thinking, yeah, right, he doesn't have a real Torah scroll. You know, he tells me how he got a Torah scroll, and someone gave it to him and said, don't worry, you don't even have to pay for it, you'll, you'll, you'll pay me later. Um, I thought, you know, they probably gave him one of these toy scrolls, a real Torah scroll is written by a scribe, it takes about a year, and that's and why it costs so it's much. It's all time. handwritten, correct? Handwritten with, with, um, with a quill, you know, like a feather, 
Um, some really traditional ones even do it with a reed, like a piece of reed. And it's, you know, uh, handmade ink. Everything is done, you know, handmade, the traditional Torah scrolls. And so I'm thinking what they sold him was probably a toy. Sure. You know, I can't, I, I, you know, and, and you could buy those toys for, you know, in Israel or actually anywhere uh, online even for, you know, $10, $20. I'm thinking it can't be a real Torah scroll. Nobody gives a $30,000 Torah scroll if it's on the lower end to somebody and says, you know, don't worry about the price. We'll, you know, we'll, right. we'll talk about that later, uh, which is, you know, what happened to him. And um, so he says, would you come see my Torah scroll? And I'm not really interested in this Torah scroll. I want to talk about this tour that we're going to do the next day. So I go over to where he's staying, and I unfurl the scroll. And he says, can you read it? And I say, well, yeah, of course I can read it. And I start reading it. And it's a section in, uh, in the Torah, in Leviticus 23, on the Feast of Pentecost, which Jews call Shavuot, Feast of Weeks. And this was significant because he had had a dream telling him to come get a Torah scroll on the Jewish Feast of Shavuot. We're reading it around the time of Shavuot, and he starts jumping for joy. I mean, he's literally, you know, part of his tradition is, is very, uh, what we would call in, in my tradition, enthusiastic. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, very calm, and, you know, and he says, well, you know, do you realize what this means? And I'm like, yeah, it's a coincidence. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and, and you were forever the scholar at that point, right? I, I'm the academic. I'm the scholar. Yeah, so, you know, and I, and I have a reason. Why would it open to this section for, you know, I, I can give you ten reasons. Um and you had a dream, you know, another crazy Christian with a dream doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> right. Um, and that, that's part of the tradition I came from. Within Judaism, there are people who are more into the spiritual side. I came from the academic tradition of Judaism. Right. From the um, Northeastern European Lithuanian Jews who are the intellectual elite. And I'm seeing this guy, he's literally jumping in the air and he's literally shouting. And I'm thinking, oh man, I've just landed in the middle of Christian television. Get me out of here. <laughs> 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 and uh, anyway... Um, over the years, I've had some experiences hanging out with Keith. You know, uh, we went on the tour the next day, and oh, and the best part is on the front of the Torah scroll is a, is a verse from the book of Isaiah. It's the verse that says that the Torah, which is, of course, the five books of Moses, says the Torah shall go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And there he's got his Torah. And it's a verse that talks about Gentiles, non-Jews. It's a really revolutionary prophecy, if you think about it, for 700 B.C. from Isaiah. Um, He's prophesying how Gentiles will come to Jerusalem and the Torah will go forth to them from, from, the, from the center in Jerusalem. And here is this man, 2,700 years later, shows up in Jerusalem, gets a Torah scroll, which should be impossible for somebody like him, and, um, and, and it's got the verse from Isaiah on the front of it. I mean, to me, that's, when, that caught my attention, I'll admit, but I was still trying to come up with all the rationalizations and, you know, well, you know, they put that on many Torah scroll covers and, you know... Um, Anyway, the next day we're walking around and he's asking me all these Bible questions. Well, what I was always taught is don't, don't quote, you know, what Christians will do in their tradition is they'll memorize entire chapters of the Bible. What I was told is, what I was always taught is read it right from the text. And so he's asking me these questions about different things in the Bible and I'm doing what's completely natural to me. I pull out my Bible and I start reading to him from it and he's, and he's hearing it and he's like, well, that's not my translation. What translation are you using? I said, I'm not using any translation. I'm, I'm reading it from Hebrew and translating to you in English, which, you know, I've lived in Israel for 20 years. That's not difficult for me. Um, so, he, so he decided at that point that he wanted that for himself. Um, he said, I want to be able to read the Bible the way I read an English book. And I said, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, right. And, he, and over, over this, you know, following months, he convinced me to be his Hebrew teacher. And we spent quite a, quite a bit of time 
uh, teaching. Now, he had studied Hebrew at his Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, which happens to be where I'm from as well. Um, but the Hebrew they taught him was something that when you do a sermon on Sunday morning, you go look up the word to sound very interesting to your congregation. You don't actually read the whole passage in Hebrew um, in, in his tradition. And in mine, you know, that's all you did. Um, and so he wanted to learn that level of Hebrew. And we worked on that together. And then one of the things that grew out of that is he had a friend who was a uh, NFL Hall of Famer named Reggie White, right. who had uh, been affiliated with one of the football teams that, that Keith um, you know, was ministering to in the past. Absolutely. And, and Reggie saw that Keith had this level of Hebrew, and, and he said, well, I, you know, and, and actually that had become one of his passions, one of Reggie's passions, to be as, as, um, as fluent in the Bible and as much an expert in the Bible as he had been in football. And I ended up teaching Reggie White Hebrew uh, the last year of his life. And, uh, you know, and, and here was this football player who, you know, you know, could break every bone in my body without even trying. And, and he's sitting there with me reading in Hebrew, you know, after a period of time. So, um, so this was a, a relationship that that uh, started with some questions in your mind, but quickly I, I, I take it solidified with uh, both both Keith's and Reggie's willingness to to learn. I mean, for I wouldn't say quickly. I would say it took me quite a number of years. Okay. <laughs> Back in okay. 2002, okay. and now it's been 13 years. But what I did see quickly is here's a man who, according to the boxes that my people have created in the Jewish tradition, he's outside the box. He can have no relationship with God. He's from another religion. You know, he, If he wants to have a relationship with God, he's got to stand before a panel of three rabbis, be immersed into a ritual a bath, a mikvah, and convert. And here he's, he, as a Christian, is having this, and I can see he's having this relationship with God, this intense spirituality, and that caught my attention very early on. I thought, wow, you know, the preconceptions I've been given about who God is and, and how he's supposed to relate to us as human beings, it doesn't, it doesn't fit with, within the boxes that I was taught in my tradition. And, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll tell you now is God is bigger than the boxes we created for him. Um, you know, we created boxes for ourselves, but I'm convinced now we've also created boxes for God, and he's bigger than those boxes. And that's, that's, I would say, the main thing that I've taken away from the relationship with Keith and Reggie and others like them, is that God is, is you know, has this relationship with, with anybody. You know, there's a verse in the Bible uh, that says, uh, the Lord is close to all who call him, to all, all who call upon him in truth. That's in the Old Testament. And, and that's like a, a verse we put in the footnotes. We don't like to deal with that verse because, no, you can't just call upon God in truth. You've got to come with certain doctrines and rituals and traditions, and then you can have a relationship with God. And I'm, and I'm just amazed at the God that I've encountered. We're talking to Nehemia Gordon, a co-author of a book called A Prayer to Our Father. And we're talking about the book and how he started with his uh, co-writer, co-author, Keith Johnson. We'll be back after this message. This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. 
the Scripps faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing media environment. The Scripps College of Communication is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence in Ohio in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, the brand-new facility that opened in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in this new building. Learn more about the Scripps College of Communication at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. How did you determine how to start the research and, and the fact that you wanted to pursue this? So I, I had done some research on my own um, uh, on the, this Hebrew version of the Gospel of Matthew. One of the things you'll learn in any seminary, any university in the world, is that the Gospel of Matthew is the, the earliest, most accurate copy is in Greek. And I discovered that there was this Hebrew version of Matthew that other scholars had actually you know, found, had actually uncovered. I didn't discover it myself. I found what other scholars had discovered. But it was one of these documents that fell between the cracks. That, you know, we say in Hebrew, it fell between the chairs. Um, and what that means is that you, um, you, you, know, you have the, the New Testament experts who are experts in Greek. They can't read this Hebrew document. And then you have Jewish scholars who are experts in Hebrew. They have very little interest in the Hebrew version of the New Testament. And so you have this Hebrew version of the Gospel of Matthew preserved by Jewish rabbis down through the Middle Ages, and, uh, and no one was, nothing had been done with it. You know, it was just sitting there collecting dust in libraries. And one of, one of my issues in academia was I would say to my professors, you know, we've written these brilliant, you know, works and these great, you know, works of scholarship. How does this help the common man? And the response I would get is, it's not for them. They couldn't even understand it if they read it. And it's meant to be that way. And I never accepted that. And so here is this Hebrew version of the Gospel of Matthew. I wanted to see how could this be applied to a believer. I'm not what Christians would call a believer. I'm a believer in my Jewish faith. I'm not, I'm not a Christian. So I wanted to see somebody who approached this not just as an ancient text like I did, but someone who approached it as a sacred text, meaning the Gospel of Matthew, what would he get out of reading this, this Hebrew Matthew? And, and that's where Keith and I came together. I called up Keith one day, and I, you know, we had had an agreement um, a formal agreement, Keith and I, that we would not discuss the, gospel, the, the New Testament or Jesus. And that's because a lot of Jews, maybe rightfully so, ha- have this concern that, that um, you know, Christians want to talk to us just to convert us. So I said, Keith, we'll, we'll deal with Hebrew, we'll deal with the, he- the Old Testament, but don't, 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 I don't want to hear about Jesus. That, that was my okay. agreement we made. Yeah, sure. And one day I called him up and I said, can we break the agreement and talk about Jesus? And he was very excited. <laughs> but what I really wanted to do was come with my Hebrew expertise and combine that with him approaching the Gospel of Matthew as, as a work of, you know, as a, as a work of faith, as, as a sacred text, and see what we could come up with. And what we found was amazing. It, it, it's things, you know, it's changed my life. Um, I've learned so much from this study with him on this Hebrew version of Matthew, and then other things beyond that that I've just been so blessed. How did you decide to focus in on the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer probably. Uh, one of the, uh, certainly in, in the Christian faith, the most universal prayer, but I, I, your research, I take it, 
found that it's not just universal in the Christian faith, but it has universality beyond that. You know, I don't think it's a secret, certainly from the Jewish perspective, that, that one of the things that makes Jews uncomfortable is we'll come and we'll interact with Christians and we'll all talk about how we're monotheists and have the same God, and when many Christians pray, they'll either pray to Jesus or in Jesus' name. And for me as a Jew, that's something I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with. Um, and so we're reading, we were reading uh, you know, various passages in the Hebrew version of Matthew, and we came across the section where the disciples of Jesus himself say, Lord, how do we pray? How should we pray? And he teaches them to pray to our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's a famous prayer. And um, I thought, both of us thought, here's something where we can have common ground. There's the tradition of what's done in the church. There's the tradition of what's got done in the synagogue. But if you take this prayer at face value, it's, it really is a universal prayer. In fact, there was a famous rabbi who taught at a, a seminary in New York, and he used to begin his class on prayer by reading the, prayer, the Lord's Prayer in Hebrew. And then he would ask his, his students... Who were, who were seminary students studying to be rabbis, where is this prayer from? And, this, you know, and they weren't familiar with the New Testament, most of them. They'd say, oh, that's from the, you know, the special Yom Kippur service uh, you know, in the afternoon. They, you know, some obscure prayer that's recited maybe once a year, maybe once every few years. And when he told them, no, this is from the New Testament, they were shocked. Because from the actual content of the prayer, it's actually a, a wonderful, beautiful, perfectly good Jewish prayer. And, and for me, that was a surprise, you know, um, the key prayer in, in the Christian world is actually a perfectly good, solid Jewish prayer. We're always looking at biblical works, and, and I know you in biblical scholarship uh, look at different translations, and there have been multiple translations from the inception until today. How have those translations weighed into interpretations of, of, of that prayer? Well, so what we did is we actually went back to uh, the original Greek text, and we went, because, you know, I studied Greek at the Hebrew University, Keith, of course, at his seminary had studied Greek, and then we also compared that systematically, word by word, line by line, word by word, um, with, the, um, with the Hebrew text. And again, this was a Hebrew version that was preserved by Jewish rabbis through the Middle Ages. It was discovered in the 1980s and published. Um, you know, it's there in, in academia and scholarship. It's just not given much attention because the scholars need to you know, access it really can't um, or don't want to. Um, so we were systematically translating it directly from Greek and Hebrew and comparing every word, you know, every syllable in some respects. Um, you know, there's lots of translations. Um, you know, I was taught in, in, in my academic tradition, uh, there's an old saying, the translator is a traitor. And what that means, a traitor as in, you know, uh, he betrays the language. And what that means is that if you translate something literally, you lose the flavor of the language. If you translate something based on the idiom of the target language, well, then you, you, um, you know, you're, you're, losing, you're losing the meaning in one or the other, either it's, the target it's, language or in the original. It's always diluted, then, either way that you go. It, by definition. And, and um, there is no, you know, people ask me this all the time. I get this email daily. What's the best translation? And what I say is always compare a couple different translations. There's no translation that's perfect. Um, you know, uh, a translator inherently has a bias, whether he knows it or not. And, and a translation is, by, you know, I, I, it's funny, I'll meet people who say, well, I take the Bible literally. I don't interpret it. And, and I immediately recognize that as a sign of, of ignorance of, of language. Because any time you read any text in any way, you are interpreting the Bible. Now, you can interpret it based on the, you know, the language and the context and the history using common sense. Um, and, and I think that's what they mean by when they say they don't interpret the Bible. 
but any reading of any text uh, is by definition an interpretation. Um, so, you know, and, and translations for sure are interpretations. And what I love about reading the Hebrew in the original Hebrew and the original Greek and original Greek is if I'm reading an interpretation, at least it's my interpretation, and I can figure out what are the biases that went into it and try to get past them. Or when I read somebody else's translation, I have no idea what I'm dealing with. You know, it's, it's the luck of the draw. Well, as you and Keith went through this translation, did you have points of disagreement about uh, the translation and its meaning? <laughs> well, Keith likes to say that uh, in all the years together, he's only won one argument with me. What it was about for me and for Keith is focusing on the common ground. And, and you know, I don't know if you've heard this expression or if you know a lot of Jewish people, but there's an old saying in, in the Jewish world that if you have two Jews, you get three opinions. Um, and there's a lot of truth to that. There's really an ancient and I believe venerable tradition in the Jewish world of internal debate and discussion. Um, and, and, you know, and, and we can disagree and, and, still, um, and still respect one another. In fact, the rabbis have a saying, uh, ancient rabbis, they say that there, there, uh, there is no argument about uh, smell and, and taste. And the implication is that those things are inherently subjective, but about every other thing in the in the universe, there is argument about. <laughs> you can argue about everything, and and, and there, like I said, there's a venerable Jewish tradition of arguing about things. But what we try to do is focus on the common ground, and and that takes a lot of, I, for me at least, and I think for Keith as well, it took a lot of spiritual maturity, of of coming in, in with humility and saying, okay, we can talk all day long about what we disagree with. What do we agree on? And what can we learn from each other based on what we agree on? And, um, you know, there was a verse that people challenged us with, especially Keith. There's a verse in the book of Amos in the Old Testament. It says, can two walk together except they be agreed? And people take that verse and they say, how can you walk together with another person of faith unless you agree with them? And that in the Christian world is the basis for over 40,000 denominations. You know, you'll go to these, right. these denominations and say, why did you break off from this other denomination? And why did they break off from the other denomination? And the answer is, well, how can, we, how can we walk together in faith unless we agree? And so Keith and I, based on that challenge, decided to look in the original Hebrew. And I love what it says in the Hebrew of the book of Amos. It says, Can two walk together without having met one another? And what it's saying there in Amos is the exact opposite. It's saying you cannot walk together with another person unless you first agree to meet on common ground. And so we took that as our slogan, that we would meet on the common ground, focus on what we have in common. We both believe in what we call our Heavenly Father, the creator of the universe. We obviously have different theologies and different concepts of what that is, but we have this common ground. We both have scripture as common ground. And we both have, I think most importantly, this love and desire for God and trying to understand him and trying to understand his word. Um, and not trying to convince the other one to change his belief or change his faith or convert the other one, which is the basis of a lot of, sadly, of interfaith dialogue. Rather, what we were trying to do is get to come to know the creator of the universe who's bigger than the boxes we've, than we've you know, bigger than the boxes we've created for him, and understand him based on the ancient Hebrew sources. And, and to me, this has been just a nonstop blessing. We've only got about four minutes left, but I, I have so much to, to cover. Uh, how has the response been within your Jewish community to your work and, and you writing this with a, a Christian pastor? Well, I, I would say the response has been mixed. Um, 
a lot of Jews, especially, their response has been, well, you know, we, we don't we don't need to deal with that, you know. And in fact, my father, who who is an Orthodox rabbi of blessed memory, he, you know, when I, I, I gave him the book to read, he said, he said, look, we've got our thing, they have their thing. Leave it alone. <laughs> Why do we want to deal with those people? <laughs> don't don't mix and, it up, right? Exactly. And, 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 and I look at history, because that's what I, I, my core area is, I studied history, is, you know, the history of religion. In history, this has led to utter disasters. It's led to misunderstanding. It's led to persecution. It's led to suffering. And it, it's led to, you know, to disasters throughout history for both Jews and Christians. And I, I think that's the last thing we want to do. I think if, if you don't understand the other, then you end up building this whole story in your head about what he's about and who he is and what he believes and not understanding him, you know, and especially in a society, um, most Western societies today have, you know, mixed populations of different groups. And if we want to live together, we need to understand one another. I think that's vital. We've been talking with Jewish scholar Nehemia Gordon about the discovery of a Hebrew version of the Lord's Prayer. We want to thank you for listening to Spectrum. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm Tom Hodson. Coming up next time is an illuminating conversation with Gwen Eiffel, the moderator and managing editor of Washington Week on PBS and a senior correspondent for PBS's NewsHour. She'll talk about her career, race, and politics. For more information about Spectrum, go to woub.org.